Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Zacharias was silenced for speaking his own words, words that build, defend, and secure the things that serve Herod's agenda, a thriving community centered by a bountiful temple life. Everyone believes in and worships this agenda as much as, if not more, than the Romans prayed to their emperors. In reality, the two idols are in symbiosis. A happy mob, a happy emperor, vice versa, etc., etc. So the silencing of Zacharias becomes more curious, more deafening, a genuine threat to Herod's temple life. But then something odd happens. Zacharias starts speaking again. What could he say that could be riskier than silence? Why did it have to be him? Why couldn't anyone else speak the words? It could not have been anyone else, and it wasn't. It was Zacharias. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 67. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 449 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I'm going to say something that will sound scandalous. I don't believe in community. I believe in the shepherd. Now, when I say I believe in the shepherd, you'll think I'm talking about Jesus in a mystical sense. I'm not. I'm speaking in a functional sense about the function of headship, which obviously in Scripture is a function that Jesus occupies and inhabits. So in that sense, yes, I trust in Jesus as our good shepherd in the Gospel of John, for example. But I don't trust in community. And I will push it even further to say that the Apostle Paul does not set out in the New Testament to evangelize communities. No way. He sets out to evangelize heads of household, patricians. And once a patrician is evangelized, meaning 
once a patrician's words are canceled and supplanted with the dabarim of Scripture, then it follows that the rest of the household is baptized because the downward pressure of the head of household is cascaded through the rest of the household because the paradigm, once again, is shepherdism. The target is the shepherd because what is necessary to scatter so that there's no risk of institution building is the head of the tribe. Remember that shepherd of flock is part of the natural setting of the human being among the families of the earth in the wilderness. And by families, I don't just mean human beings. I mean all of the mammals, the creepy crawling things upon the face of the earth, the mishpahot. When the shepherd speaks, he runs the risk of building an institution, which is why Zacharias found himself inside a temple. But when the shepherd, the tribal chief, is prevented from speaking his own words, then suddenly his authority as tribal chief becomes functional for scripture, and when he speaks, he doesn't build, he scatters, so that everything remains as intended by the scriptural God in its natural setting. That is what is happening in Luke. Coming on the heels of last week's episode, when his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And the people were afraid because now they were hearing the downward pressure of the authority figure co-opted by the wisdom of the one who is giving him the dabarim to speak. So it's not Zacharias who's in charge, but he is in charge except he's not saying what he wants to say. This is not conciliarity. This is not community. This is not kinonia fellowship in the egalitarian sense. This is tribal chiefdom under the boot of God's dabarim. There's so many examples that we have in the ancient world of how this functions. I mean, in Hosea, how much of the address is to the kings and the priests? That's who the Lord is speaking to, with the others around as witnesses, but that is who is being taught. That is who is being evangelized. They're the ones who have to be the leaders in making sure that this word is going out and that the people are following according to this word. And we have this in modern Afghanistan, where if you want to make an agreement, 
you have to get each one of the patriarchs around. You have a jirga and you, you bring everybody together and you have a meal and you have tea and everybody has to come to an agreement. This is not a democracy. Each one of those people sitting at that food, I was going to say at that table, but there's no table. They're sitting on the floor. Each one of those people represents a tribe. And those people don't tell the patriarch, oh, make sure we get this and make sure we get this and make sure we get this. And he says, I'll make sure all of your needs are represented and I'll make sure that you're represented there. No, he goes and that's it. And he comes back and then he tells everybody what was decided. The people don't get a say and the people don't get a vote who the chief of their tribe is. Everybody just knows who the chief of their tribe is. He goes to the jirga, negotiates, and then comes back. In the beginning of the Orthodox Church, we had five patriarchs, but there was one who was first among equals. So even among the elders, you had the eldest of the elders. This is how the ancient world naturally functioned. Egyptologists talk about ancient Egypt. You talk about Dynasty 17, Dynasty 18, Dynasty 19. Dynasty means a household that's headed by a single living monarch. It's always organized this way. Now, in the United States, we see how much of a problem this is. Because, for example, when we had the banking crisis in 2008, well, each one of those banks is an LLC and is its own, quote, person, unquote, under the eyes of American law. And then the people said, wait, how come nobody went to jail after those crimes were committed? Because you can't send a corporation to jail and a CEO is not actually the head legally is not the head of the organization. If the organization does something bad, it's not the CEO who is the fall guy. They find some guy in finance who added a zero here and took away a zero there. They find that person. But no one is responsible for U.S. Bank. There's not a single person where the buck stops because you got the CEO, but then you got his reports, and then you got the board of directors, and then you got the shareholders. And and it goes around and around and around, and we see what that brings. So in this context, when we're talking about this, Zechariah is the representative of the temple. Is the temple a representative of God? Absolutely not. Cannot be. The deity may declare that he's going to be represented by this, but it's only by his word that founds his reputation. As soon as he takes away that word, now it's no longer his place. We see this play out in Ezekiel, where the temple is his place, but then he leaves. So it's only his when he attaches his name to it by his word. So with Zechariah, when Zechariah wants to say, huh, what's going on? He always says, you know what? Just don't talk because it's going to be your words. It's going to make my job harder. This is a long chapter anyway. I want to get this done. Zechariah, it's just better if you don't speak. (laughs) And that way we'll get to what I want to teach because what the Lord is trying to do here in Luke chapter one is establish himself and his Holy Spirit as the word that goes out that establishes him as the head of the tribe. Now, is there a tribe if there's a head and no people? Yeah. The patriarch can stand alone. That's not a problem. But if the people are there and there's no patriarch, 
then it's just a loose confederation of people like a neighborhood and people come and they live there for a while, then they sell their house and nobody remembers exactly where they moved to. And you know, sometimes you get mail and you ask the, the post office to forward it for you because you don't know what happened to them. And no one is in charge except maybe the post office knows. That's it. So in my neighborhood where I live, there is no head. There is no head. We have a representative in the state government. I don't even know what the name of the person is. But that's the closest I could come to. But that person changes every two years. So why would I get to know them? They're not a patriarch. And as you and I always say, Father, we say patriarch. That's the word that we have in English. But it can be a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. The gender of that person doesn't matter. It's that that person is the head and that the body then falls around where that head says you have to go. That's how Paul uses that image. Okay, once the head gets separated from the body, the body can't go anywhere. The head still lives for a few minutes, <laughs> even without lungs. Not very long, but still lives for a little bit. Okay, so it's the head of the body that decides, that is the will of that body, that is the senses of that body, is the decision of that body, and is the word of that body. It's the head that defines what that body, the head that defines what that flock is. It's the Shabbat in the wilderness. It's an it. I appreciate the fact that you pointed out yet again that this has nothing to do with gender, because in 2022, the next battle is going to be, ah, you're a chauvinist. No, it's an it. It doesn't matter, the gender. It's the staff. It's a question of authority and headship. And I like that image, Richard, of the shepherd standing alone at the midbar, calling out to the sheep. And the recitation, the calling out, is, as we've said many times in some of the presentations we've done together, it's the calling out of the Mu'adhan who's reciting the sacred text. You are calling out, and those who hear the call follow the shepherd and find life because the shepherd leads them to the oasis. It's a very simple, beautiful metaphor. But What's painful about the metaphor when you actually hear Scripture is that very often Scripture is scattering and breaking. Whereas what Zacharias wants to say as an agent of Herod, he can either function as an agent of Herod or a slave of Elohim. When he functions as an agent or a slave of Herod, he wants to raise money to build something. That is the sin of every clergy person. You want to raise money to build something. But if you are functioning under the authority of Gabriel in Luke, you won't speak if that's what you're setting out to say. You will stop speaking. You cannot speak in order to raise money to build something and be the servant or the slave of Elohim. Because Elohim is giving you words to speak from the midbar that don't build anything. Because he wants to keep you 
in your natural state at the midbar. And it's not literal. Father Paul has made this point. He's made it in his book. He's made it in speaking engagements. I'm almost certain I've heard him say it on the podcast, Richard, that it's not about literally going out to live in the Syrian wilderness. In fact, this was very clear in the rise of Scripture. The whole strategy of the New Testament writers was to co-opt the Roman household as a tribal function or unit within the Roman Empire, but to deconstruct it institutionally and break it down to its most basic element, right? So that it literally was just a tribe, no longer building institution for the Romans, but enslaved by the Dabarim of Scripture. The slave of God through Jesus Christ instead of the slave of Caesar through the patrician. So there it is. But no matter how you look at it, the fact is that in our natural setting, human beings organize, rather, I want to rephrase that, we don't organize. We are organized by an organizing principle, which is downward pressure. This is biological. It is biological. That is how things work in our natural setting. But we just aren't allowed in Scripture to build institution. It is God who is the creator and the maker in Genesis 1 through 4, except on the third day. (laughs) He doesn't make or create anything on the third day. It's very interesting. Go read Decoding Genesis. That's my invitation to you. It is God who is the maker and the creator, and only he speaks. So let's get this through our head and try to hear what's going on in the story. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, again, Richard, you are the resident expert on the Holy Spirit on this podcast. (laughs) I put that in brackets, on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And you've said many times that the Holy Spirit is a mechanism of control. Paul wields the Spirit in Galatians. Of course, we're very familiar with the sword of the Spirit as a metaphor for the Apostle Paul taken out of his letters as something that he wields. So Paul is unique in this regard. But here, Zacharias, as a patrician or a shepherd or a priest or whatever, a head of a tribe or a community under the boot of God is controlled by the Spirit, right? Paul is above the patricians because he is the one who wields the Spirit against the patricians in the New Testament, and the Spirit here is wielded against Zacharias, and he is controlled and forced to prophesy. It's a very interesting metaphor right here in verse 67. Yeah, this Holy Spirit has been working throughout this chapter. The child is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That was in verse 15. And we had the angel telling Mary that she would be filled with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and that the child would be born of her would be the Son of God. Then when she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and then praises Mary and the child that's going to be 
born of her. And so you can trace where this Holy Spirit is moving from one person to the next. And it's a very specific route. I don't want people to get too dreamy about this because people think that they could trace where the Holy Spirit goes by how excited people get or how much people cry or, you know, this kind of thing. The father Zecharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. That's the point. He could prophesy without the Holy Spirit, and then he'd just be prophesying his own stuff. So it's the Holy Spirit, it's that breath which allows him to speak these words. So you know these words are holy because it's holy breath that makes them come out of his lungs. Okay, that's how the Holy Spirit functions. It's not that he was really excited when he said these. He could have been mumbling them in a monotone. We don't know. And it doesn't say how he said it. Just said the Holy Spirit went inside him, and then these words came out in prophecy. That's the important piece here. Zechariah didn't speak until these words were put into him. And that's similar to Ezekiel. I think I mentioned that uh, previously. Ezekiel was not allowed to speak, and then he was allowed to speak the words of the scroll that he ate. Zechariah was silenced, and now he's allowed to speak once this Holy Spirit comes out of him, now that they've all been wondering about how marvelous this child is going to be. Well, what's marvelous about this child is what we've seen before. So the words now have to be taken seriously. Second, it seems like only people with the Holy Spirit get to speak because Mary was able to speak when the Holy Spirit said was going to come on to her. Elizabeth was able to say a word when Mary came to visit her with the Holy Spirit. And now Zechariah is allowed to speak by the Holy Spirit. And this is so important because we have to even say, can a sermon be filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Because the only time when Scripture says that someone is speaking by the Holy Spirit, they're saying words that are Scripture. Now, you can talk about those words, but you can't necessarily say that your talk about those words is the Holy Spirit, because it's not. It's a comment on these inspired words. Okay, fine. But your words are going to be judged by these words, not the other way around. You don't get to interpret these words and say what these words mean. These words get to say what your words are valid and what your words mean. That's the only way to do it. So your parish should know what scripture is saying. That's why the original sermons were simply a targum, a translation of Hebrew into Aramaic, so people understood what the words were saying. That was it. But you couldn't have a Targum on its own. You were not allowed to read a Targum on its own. You had to read the original words, and then you had to read the Targum. And it was so, so strict, in fact, that they had to be two different people speaking so that nobody got confused what were the words of Scripture and what was the translation. This is how the rabbinic rules came around the Targum, okay? And you had to say scripture twice and the translation once. So one person read scripture, another person read a translation, and that first person read scripture again. You bracketed whatever interpretation, even just a translation, with the original words. So the inspired Holy Spirit words are the only reference. And people aren't going to understand this unless they just immerse themselves in these words and start putting aside their own thoughts and their own words. That's such a beautiful tradition, Richard, that beautiful custom of reading the text aloud in the original language, and the homily being this act of generosity and mercy and grace 
the homily being merely a rendering in the colloquial for those who don't yet know the original language. In this regard, I think there's value in the use of biblical Greek in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and it's unfortunate that we've shied away from this practice because of you know, Western nationalism and the desire to insist upon anglicizing our tradition when we have this wealth and this treasure of our Greek heritage in the text of the liturgy, which is informed at the center with the preaching of the gospel in the original Greek. I really wish more people in our tradition would take that seriously and make the effort, if nothing else, to listen to the New Testament in Greek. I don't expect people to do it in the American churches. I don't think there's an interest in that or a will to take the text that seriously. But fortunately for us, in the modern church, there are a plethora of recordings of the New Testament chanted aloud in Greek. Get a copy and listen to it. It's wonderful. Get used to hearing it in Greek and then work through translations, all the while gaining familiarity with the sound of the original Greek. Make the effort to learn the Greek, just like we're talking about Hebrew. And then you have to learn the Greek under the pressure of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Don't learn the Greek under the pressure of Hellenistic philosophy and theology. Learn the Greek under the pressure of the Hebrew text, which is how the Septuagint was translated from the original Hebrew. That's useful. That's how you should think about the study of Scripture. Unfortunately, we're more preoccupied with convenience and identity. We're Americans and we need to make it easy. But that's not the spirit of what you're describing. I'm very appreciative for that example, Richard. I don't think it's the first time you've mentioned it, but I think it's very valuable. The earliest sermons in the Jewish tradition were simply an effort to translate, aka interpret or render the original language so that those who were not familiar with Hebrew could at least understand the reading and they made sure people heard the original first. Beautiful. It was a long conversation about a short verse, but it was well worth it today, Rich. Thanks very much. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.